Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. One time in the springtime, I was fishing in the Bitterroot Mountains in western Montana. I was walking through a meadow by a stream, a gentle day of blue sky and white clouds, a couple of deer flies following me but not attacking, just hanging out. I looked down and I saw a mushroom, three inches in diameter, brown and purple, growing up out of a cow pie. I pulled it, turned it over, took a big whiff, and my stomach tightened into a knot. Psilocybin, no doubt about it, so I ate it. Sometime later, I was standing at the base of a mountain. The sun was beating down, and I was sweating profusely. I didn't know where I was or how I got there, but I still felt very much at home. Then, suddenly, like out of nowhere, I realized I was surrounded by prairie dogs and they were all barking at me. I'd wandered into their territory, invaded their space, and they were angry. They were attacking me. In my chemically altered mind, I saw their barking chirps coming at me as red water balloons, as self-enclosed sonic bullets that traveled silently until they exploded on impact with my body. I was being hit from all sides. Fish, I yelled at them. I'm here for fish, but they remained relentless and cruel in their attack. I waved my fly rod, trying to pierce or puncture the balloons, but to no avail. So I ran for it as fast as I could go. I ran and ran down to the cottonwood trees along the stream, where I slowed my racing heart by staring at the gleaming tip of my fly. Then I unclipped the fly from the rod and held it between my fingers, studying the water, eager to take my revenge upon the animal kingdom. Today on Home of the Brave, I'm gonna play stories that come from springtime, that time when the flowers come out on the fruit trees and there's new hope in the air. Things are not all bad. The world will not end today or tomorrow. The world is a happy fortune cookie. So lighten up and go outside for a walk and keep your eyes out for mushrooms. This first story is from the spring of 1983, and it's the second story I ever did. I was in Washington, D.C., working on my first story at NPR during the daytime, and at night I was sleeping in the Gospel Mission on 12th and O. Here's how David Malpas introduced the story for All Things Considered. It rained in Washington this afternoon, the wide streets quickly cleared of tourists. Already crowded museums and galleries overflowed with refugees from the light storm. There are many travelers here now. The capital is an emerald city in spring, and tourists wisely choose this time to visit, even if it does rain. Sightseers gaze at the gleaming marble monuments and parade through historical institutions where people try their hands at government. But there are other streets here that stir the heart, too, as independent producer Scott Carrier learned, other streets and men and circumstances. In the evening, he stands with Christ in the alley, leaning against the white brick wall of the auto repair garage, finishing his second fifth of pop-off vodka. The air is cool and the streets are warm. The streets say, relax, man. Watch the day before it's gone, before the trees stop glowing. 
The alley is long and he can't see out of it. He's got a river in his head and it keeps leaking out through his eyes and nose and mouth. One eye is blind, one leg is bad, his teeth are dissolving. Jesus told him he can drink as much as he wants, and he wants a lot. One time he was a paratrooper in Korea. He landed on Porkchop Hill and prayed for Christ to get him off. Another time he was a desk clerk in the DC Annex Hotel, just right over there, across the street, but they tore it down. When the sun goes down, he walks like an old horse to the gospel mission on Fifth Street. He walks with Christ. Christ speaks to him. He says, walk with me. The mission is near. Reading from God's Word tonight in Luke chapter 15. And the Son said unto his Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy Son. And the Father said unto his servant, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his, on his hand and shoes on his feet. And they, and they bring the padded calf and killed it. Let us eat and be merry, for this is my son, dead and is alive again. He that was lost is found. Home, sweet home. Home, sweet home. See the light of that city so bright, my home, sweet After the service, he and the others go upstairs to the fourth floor, walk down a long hallway, and into a small room with 50 bunk beds and a lavatory. He finds his bed and passes out. He has a dream in his head. He dreams of the Bowery. His friends are there. They're laughing, stumbling around, patting him on the back. Someone hit a number, and there's plenty of wine. In the morning, the streets are damp. The quiet streets and smell of rain make it seem like Sunday. He's got a desert in his head. He walks down the street like a cold lizard, Jesus tagging along behind. For I know the Lord is inside of me. Now I am the Lord will provide for me. 
glory going up. Little Lord and guide me all the way. In the spring of 96, I drove to the Sea of Cortez with my friend Creighton King and our sons Eli and Milo. We camped on the beach at Kino Bay. At night, there was a full moon, and Creighton took out his guitar and sang this song by Robbie Robertson. Heard a bugle blowing in the misty morning With a haunting sound over Times Square of the ghost of 52nd Street Looked out the door but no one was there Out in the cold Harlem rain I went searching for this minstrel man Play me a song to ease the pain with the Salvation Army band When you're out there in the dark All alone When you're sleeping in the park At the end of the road In those proud shoes Coming on up the alley In those proud shoes Walk all over the sky Then he tipped his head Just like Don Quixote Was saying Don't let the rapture Don't let the rapture Pass you by Don't let it pass you by Don't let it pass you by I have a friend who hunts mushrooms in Montana. He called and said, It's the spring runoff, man. We can borrow a drift boat from my neighbor and go out on the river and look for morels along the shore. Come up, bring a bottle of wine, and we'll have dinner. He lives in Paradise Valley. The river's the Yellowstone, a 500-mile drive from my home in Salt Lake City, but I told him I'd be there and to wait for me. I left at night, slept in my truck, and made it to Yellowstone Park by morning. I should have just driven straight through the park, but it was a beautiful day. Cumulus clouds, fresh air, wildflowers, so I stopped along the way. First by a stream where I knew there were some hot springs. I went for a quick plunge, got out and sat by the pool, my skin tingling from the sulfur, and watched an osprey hover above the stream and then dive straight down, 50 feet, pulling up at the last instant, hitting the water talons first but it flew away with nothing. Then there were some buffalo crossing the Madison River. Twelve of them came down a steep hillside, through some trees, and walked single file across the river. The river was maybe four feet deep in the middle, and watching them struggle in the current, I realized their bodies are shaped like airfoils, big up front and coming to a point at the butt maybe an adaptation for the high winds on the prairie. Then there was Yellowstone Lake, where I had to stop and skip some rocks, 
than Yellowstone Falls. Below the lake, the river drops through a series of waterfalls down into Yellowstone Canyon. I didn't get out of the park until 6 o'clock, driving north, following the Yellowstone River into Paradise Valley. I showed up at my friend's house as the sun was setting, apologized for being late, and my friend said it was no big deal because he and his wife had gone out on the river without me and brought back 60 to 80 morel mushrooms. Cone-shaped sponges, two to four inches long, Doug Peacock and his wife Andrea. I'm just cutting these things in half, kind of blowing off the, uh, the grass, and it's best not to wash them. It, you, don't, you don't need to wash them. They're right off the river bottom. See, this is a black morel here. It's pretty thin-skinned. And here's a white morel. Oh, damn. These things, these are, these are sensual mushrooms. All right, tell me where you got, where did you get these? Well, on the Yellowstone River, on the islands on the Yellowstone River. Cottonwood bottoms, willows, cottonwoods combined. They grow in such beautiful places, you can't believe it. And they're fresh. These are as fresh Th as These are picked today. <laughs> what the fuck, man? <laughs> you should learn about these I things, should. you ignorant son of a... <laughs> you live here. And, and you have these gaps in your education. <laughs> and it, it appalls me. <laughs> So where did you, what? I was just going to say, we'll take these scraps in and throw them out in the yard and hope to start our own morel patch. We've had a because of mycelia, you know. I mean, it just takes a spore. There are billions of spores dropping from these billions of spores. And, you know, it grows underground as like a spider web of uh, connections, you know. And uh, it's called mycelia. Right. Like they've been recorded in, in Michigan as being the world's largest organism. You know, I, I forget there's several acres, you know, like a fairy ring. But, you know, this is the whole mass of mycelia, which is like the spider web, like in almost microscopic stuff that grows underground. And the total number of intersections is greater than our brains or that of a great cetacean. So it could be some people, not even very hippie like, sometimes argue that, you know, these are sentient creatures. They're much older. You know, they're the oldest things, you know, among the oldest things we know. They're not plant. They're not animal. They're whatever they are. And perhaps they have a cosmic memory as, uh, you know, like, a, like an earth memory, as some of my uh, microphiliac uh, friends uh, suspect. But they think that this, uh, the mushroom itself is sentient, that it knows, that it's, you know, that it, and, and perhaps it's evolved itself to be, right. to further that sentient awareness. Right. Beats my ass. I just eat them. You, you know, you can do them all kinds of fancy uh, gourmet ways. I just fry them up with butter, you know? Well, what are you making tonight? How, what, what's the well, dish? Well, I've got a, I've got a, a chicken with a, with a morale stuffing, and I'm going to saute those on top of the stove right now. The meal was excellent. The mushrooms served both as a stuffing inside the chicken and separately in a syrup of butter and olive oil. Lots of red wine. We spoke of grizzly bears and Hollywood, the big monsters. We told stories about friends, the one who counts every bird he sees, the one who was hit by lightning, and friends who died, like Edward Abbey. A shot of Jack Daniels before going to bed. I drove home by a different route, along the headwaters of the Green River. 
It begins south of the park in a mountain range too beautiful to mention by name. The water comes down out of the mountains and winds through a high, wide valley that looks very much like the inner out between France and Switzerland. I pulled off the highway onto private property, a 3,000-acre ranch along the river, drove down a dirt road, and parked on a bridge over the river about a quarter mile from the ranch house. I knew I was trespassing, but I also knew the owner of the land and knew he wasn't home, that he was in New York City undergoing treatment for cancer. I wanted to tell him, Otis, it's cold here. The snow in the mountains hasn't even started to melt yet. The river is low and quiet by your house. The grass is as green as I've ever seen it, and there are pools of water all over the meadow, like little round mirrors reflecting the blue sky and white clouds. Your brother's cows are happy. The fish are waiting for your fly. Good luck, man. professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Utah. Uh, my specialty is the study of clouds and precipitation, looking at their physical properties and how they evolve with time. I've spent a lot of work in recent years looking at the shapes and fall speeds of snowflakes. Part of my work right now is designing a new instrument that will measure for the first time how much the snowflake weighs. And that may seem like an extraordinarily whimsical problem, like counting the number of angels on a head of a pin. But it turns out that this is one of the most important problems in atmospheric sciences. Um, the thing is, is that you know clouds genuinely are absolutely, totally fascinating. They, you could say with some degree of honesty that they are a, one of the most complicated creatures on this planet. I mean, we underestimate just how powerful clouds are. It would take just only about 10 big thunderstorms. The power that is generated by these thunderstorms would be roughly equivalent to the entire power consumption by all of humanity as humanity as a whole consumes about 18 terawatts of power and it's an immense amount of energy we consume in all forms whether it's oil or coal or nuclear power or renewables whatever it is 10 clouds big clouds of course very big clouds in their totality cycling through the atmosphere the um, the, the, the buoyancy that's produced to produce, for example, rain, 
that amount of power is roughly equivalent to the total power consumed by humanity. So, I mean, if we could somehow harness this, which I don't think we could, then we would have our energy problems solved. But um, one thing that's impressive, though, is that the amount of water that's in that cloud, if you were to reduce this cloud to a puddle at the surface, it would just be about a centimeter or two deep. So that is incredible, because you look at the cloud, and like in, you know, was it Renaissance times, you'd happily put babies, naked babies with wings on top of them. Maybe there would be God and Adam floating on clouds, reaching out to touch each other, and it would look totally plausible that they would rest on top of these immense, solid-looking clouds. But really, it's just air. So much of my recent work now is focused on trying to show that, for example, the extraordinary complexity of clouds that are observed in the tropics. And when I say the extraordinary complexity, I mean, the level of complexity is about as immense as one can possibly imagine. And the thing is, though, is that this cloud field is, can't do anything. It's limited in what it can do. Like, if there was no sunlight, you wouldn't have any clouds. So we have constraints on the system. We also know that in the tropics, you don't have all clouds of one size. They aren't all small clouds. Some of those clouds get together and make big clouds. And then they grow to be enormous clouds, and then they form cirrus sheets. So we get this collection of different clouds of different sizes. And there are key things that show up, which is that we get very few big clouds, and we get very, very many small clouds. And the reason is, is that there's only a certain amount of energy and matter in any system to go around. And that energy and matter has to be shared. Some of the clouds become these huge cumulonimbus clouds. They suck up a vast amount of the buoyant energy. But if they suck up a vast amount of the buoyant energy, then that means there's less buoyant energy available for the rest of the clouds. Okay, we can't all have big clouds. If you have a certain number of things that are available, they're going to have to share the energy and matter. And it turns out that there are rules for how the energy and matter can be shared, and these rules lead to such results as there being a small number of things that are rich in energy and matter, and a very large number of things that are very poor in energy and matter. These principles are really universal. You know, one very good example of this is I mean, when I say that I try to think about relationships between clouds and people, well, you can think about us individually as consuming energy and matter. So the energy we would call primary energy, that include things like fossil fuels, nuclear and renewables, and then the matter at its base level is the stuff that we might get from forests, from mines like copper, but also things like fish from the oceans. But here's the thing, is that whatever level of consumption we can do, 
it has to be shared or partitioned among the number of people or degrees of freedom within the system. So there, there's energy and matter. It must be shared. It must be partitioned. And what we end up seeing is that it gets shared in a way such that you could predict, as you could predict, that there should be a very small number of the very rich and a very large number of the very poor in a way that is mathematically predictable and is actually observed in statistics of wealth distribution. Yes, I mean that's just, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's fundamentally, the competition for resources is what makes things simple. I don't have to think about all the details of the incredible complexity of all the things that go on within these physical systems. I just know at the end of the day, I don't care what you do, you're going to have to share. And there's only a certain amount of stuff available to share, so figure it out among yourselves. But the solution's going to be this. I mean, this is a thing that I think isn't fully appreciated, is that <clears throat> currently civilization is doubling its size every 30 years. And a doubling implies that civilization will add as much to its current capacity to consume in just 30 years as it has added over the entirety of its prior history. So, I mean, if we are talking about, if we just think about what civilization's done so far to the environment um, over the entire course of its history thus far, and then we double that in just 30 years, then, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, I don't, know how to fill in the details, but presumably there's a point at which civilization gets a bit creaky and increasingly fragile, and then successive blows from, let's say, whatever the effects are from climate change, accumulate themselves over time to produce a combined impact that tips civilization over the edge into a mode of collapse. So, I mean, thinking about these problems is, to be honest, it's intellectually pretty satisfying because the problems are fascinating. But, you know, I struggle with it, of course, because thinking about what the implications are is difficult. Sometimes I have nothing better to do than sit on my porch in Salt Lake City and watch how the mountains change shape with the light. The map fixes them at 11,000 feet above sea level, 15 miles away on a straight line, but I've seen them grow taller and shorter, creep up on the city after a snowstorm and slink away in the summer's heat. I watch the mountains and wonder how long it would take me to get up there and which way I would come down and what it would be like. It all depends on the time of year, the time of day, and the weather. If it's May and 2 p.m. and my neighbor is mowing his grass in his shorts, and if in the evening the sky is clear and I wear a coat and hat to sit on my porch and drink beer, 
And if at night, looking down on the city, the lights twinkle and move in a mirage, then I know I have to set my alarm for 5 a.m. to get up early and go spring skiing. It takes an hour and a half to make coffee, eat some oatmeal, and drive up the canyon to the base of the mountain called Superior. Its southeast face is a white wave, 3,000 feet tall, a slope that gets progressively steeper and then curls over at the top in a cornice. At 6.30, the sun is hitting the top of the peak and the snow up there is red and warm while everything under the shadow is blue and cold. In winter, the snow in the Wasatch is light and dry powder, the best in the world. But in spring, the big flakes melt into small ice balls and the snowpack becomes a consolidated sheet, five to 10 feet thick. This sheet freezes hard at night, and then in the day, the surface melts to the consistency of a Slurpee. So the trick in spring skiing is to get up high and be ready to ski down just as the surface is starting to melt. An inch or so of soft snow on top of a hard base is really fun, easy to hold your edge and very fast. But there's a narrow window of time here if you start down too early, you're skiing on ice. If you go too late, it's like skiing in mush and kind of dangerous because it sometimes slides down the mountain in an avalanche. I reach the ridge about 500 vertical feet from the top and there are fresh coyote tracks following the crest line of snow toward the summit. I follow the tracks to the top and see that when he got there, he didn't even break stride, just kept going down the north ridge no time for epiphanies. It's 9.30 and I look down on the valley and see a brown layer of smog over the city from morning rush hour traffic. I look for my house, my neighborhood, but it's under the smudge. I take my skis off my backpack and put them on my feet. I'd rather have wings, but skis will do. I take the top part carefully, like a raven checking out a picnic, then drop through a chute like a dive bombing falcon then traverse across the slope at high speed, like an albatross skimming over the ocean. The snow is soft and smooth and fast, just what I thought it would be. My timing is immaculate. I'm at my truck by 9.55 and back home on my porch drinking coffee by 10.45. Time to go to work. That is, if I had a job, other than looking up at the mountains and watching how they change shape with the light. This is a men and boys choir in the Cathedral du Notre Dame in the spring of 1986. Okay, maybe it was August, but I thought I'd play it because of the fire and because when I was there I had a vision that I could travel around the world and record things and make radio stories for a living. And 33 years later, that's what I'm doing. I just got back from speaking at two radio conferences in Europe I saw the leaves come out on the trees along the canals in Amsterdam. I woke up in Ireland next to a pasture with four woolly alpacas, one just a baby. I spent days talking about how podcasting works or can work from the bottom up, forming a lattice of connections that stretch around the skin of the earth, and how this lattice is better, or at least an alternative, to the top-down fear-mongering of the corporate media. I could say these things with confidence because of you. 
I get letters from every continent, including Antarctica, and they all sound like they were written by the same person, because we're all in the same lattice, like-minded, just wanting fish and mushrooms and maybe some wine. I'd like to thank Tom Lopez for the thunderstorm ambience, the merman for the surf music, and the late Bob Moss for the short guitar song. Also thanks to Barrett Golding, who threatens the airwaves on KGLT in Bozeman, Montana. And thanks very much to everyone who listens and supports this program. <laughs>